0: Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring, adventurous, creative people from around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome to the podcast Amy Vitali. National Geographic photographer, Nikon ambassador, filmmaker, traveler to more than 100 countries, one of Insta Magazine's Badass 50, a group of women who, quote, show up, speak up, and get things done, unquote. The recipient of numerous awards for her photography, including Magazine Photographer and International Photographer of the Year, the Daniel Pearl Award for Outstanding Reporting, and she's a six-time award recipient from World Press Photos. I'm telling you, it just goes on and on. There's so many awards, a true visual storyteller and an inspiration. And, well, I really could go on and on here, but I'd rather just cut the formalities and hand this straight over to Amy, which I will do with pleasure. My conversation with Amy Vitale right after this short message from one of our sponsors. This episode was brought to you by Luminar Neo friends do i love luminar neo luminar neo helps photographers like myself with everything they could possibly need to edit and process photos that look amazing on the screen and in print luminar neo was designed for both hobbyists and pros and includes the most effective ai-powered editing tools and extensions all-in-one intuitive and easy-to-use app now whether you want to show off the finest detail on the fur of your wildlife photo Add a glamorous glow to your portrait shoot, or enhance that beautiful golden hour light in your landscapes. Luminar Neo has everything you need to improve your images naturally. You can use Luminar Neo as a standalone app on your PC or Mac computer, or if you're like me, as a plugin for Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop, so you can keep your existing workflow while having access to powerful editing tools you just can't find anywhere else. I especially love the AI enhancement features. Plus, the use of layers and masking for localized editing as well. Learn more about Luminar Neo and how it can help you improve your creativity in photo editing by visiting Skylim.com. That's SkyLum.com. That's S K Y L U M.com. Hey, Amy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Richard. It's great to be here.
0: Happy to have you on board. I'm a big admirer of your work and really glad we could connect today.
1: Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. I'm an admirer of your work too.
0: Well, thank you very much. Let's just dive in, shall we? Before you were a world-famous photographer and filmmaker and certified badass, it's in a magazine, so it has to be true. Uh, before you were all those things, you were a photo editor at the Associated Press. Yes.
1: Yes those were my beginnings. And I was also, I, before that I was even a photo editor at a a couple of different newspapers, a really small, uh, newspaper in North Carolina. I did a little photography for them and then became a photo editor at USA today, because that was the only job I could really get, uh, actually being an editor. I wanted to be a photographer to be honest, but back in the day, Uh, I think, I think it was a pretty different world and it was very hard to get people to look at me and have them, I was very shy. Um, and I'm very small in, in stature and I wanted to, I had these great grand ideas of what I wanted to do, but it was interesting. I think a lot of people couldn't envision me in that role. And so I could not get the jobs I wanted, but I did start off as an editor. And as it turns out, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned so much in that time.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you what skills or habits or worldview did you acquire during that period that you still use today as a photojournalist?
1: So many things. And by the way, I will say I didn't enjoy it while I was there. I felt like I was, you know, working at a fast food chain in a lot of ways because it felt very monotonous and sort of taking orders and fulfilling other people's ideas. There, there wasn't, it didn't feel like a creative role, but when I look back, I actually realized it was the some of the best, most important skills as a journalist that I needed. One, I really learned how to write a good caption. You have to be able to articulate in a really uh, crisp, succinct way what what it is that you're trying to show. And so being able to talk about the work was something that working as an editor gave me. Um, It also helped me really understand what was happening in the world because I had to read all the news, all the headlines, uh, understand the stories that were unfolding and start to, you know, really read more and, and learn more history. And, and then the third most important thing, it really helped me understand where the holes were. And how I could find my place in this business. Your niche. And what I, my niche, because I realized working for those, those big wire services, you know, you're, you're basically filling holes in breaking news and trying to illustrate things. But what I found was there was such a need to do more in-depth storytelling because for example, you know, something would happen and I would have to go and find a photographer to cover this breaking news event. But we never really dove into each of the issues to explain why those events were happening. And so I realized my role would be in telling the why, answering the why, not just what was happening, but why and going deeper. And that was this moment that, you know, I, I started to After I left, actually, I realized it's about slowing down, taking the time to understand a story deeply, and letting it evolve. And actually, I have to credit the Alexia Foundation. It was called the, they had a grant, the Alexia Foundation for world peace and cultural understanding. And they were the ones that took a risk on me. Nobody would give me a job as a photographer. And on a whim, I applied for a grant. Never actually thinking in a million years I would get it, but much to my delight and sheer terror, I did get the grant. And it was to go to this small, very impoverished country in West Africa called Guinea-Bissau and talk about how this civil war had impacted a community. My connection to that community was because my sister had lived there for a few years. They were her family uh, she was in the Peace Corps, she was close to them, and I wanted to find out how the Civil War had impacted them. And I went thinking I would spend just a short sort of parachute in and leave, and I ended up living there for over half a year, learned the language, really learned how uh, the majority of people living close to nature, um, what their lives are truly like. And that was this moment that I, it was like, I realized all these experiences before that, that I didn't think were that important, were so important. It taught me all the things I needed to know, which were, um, how to get beyond the headlines, how to slow down and find the narratives that were not being told. And I mean, I would say at the, I think it's changed dramatically in the time since I was an editor. But I felt like a lot of journalism was like, we as journalists would read a story and then everybody sort of followed the pack. And we would rehash old narratives over and over again. And nobody really was taking the time to slow down and spend time in a place to discover how a story had
0: evolved. And that that was a probably a big lesson for you that you've used throughout your career, the parachuting in versus embedding yourself and investing time to really go deeper and learn, you know, what's going on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that is something that I I'm much more patient with myself as well, because sometimes you are sent on an assignment and you know, you come back disappointed and you realize like, I did not do justice to the story. And instead of becoming, uh, you know, depressed about it, I realized, no, of course, because I didn't spend enough time on it. You have to earn people's trust. You have to build those relationships and allow the, the story um, for people to feel comfortable enough to truly share and share those intimate moments. And I mean, I will say that I've gotten better at getting, you know, creating beautiful relationships more quickly. You don't have to spend years, but I actually, um, it's, it's not about the speed of anything. It's just about how, um, sort of kind of yourself to a story,
0: And that's a skill. It's a skill that you learn.
1: Absolutely. Being an introvert ended up being my greatest superpower because when you're an introvert, you really like to give other people the stage. And listening is the most important uh, tool we need as storytellers is to really um, know when to let others speak, and to be genuinely interested in other stories. And so I realized being quiet was not a weakness. It was probably the most important thing I I
0: had with me. What was your first National Geographic assignment as a photographer? I'm sure you remember.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, so I did a few... For the the Mothership, the main magazine, it was the rickshaw polars in India. But National Geographic also used to have uh, many other publications. One of them was called Adventure. It was terrific.
0: It's not around anymore, is it?
1: It is not. They actually um, closed shop a long time ago, which was heartbreaking because it was such a small operation with really solid reporting. And that's when I really got to cut my teeth for the first time. I was living in India and they set me up with a fantastic writer named Paul Kvinta, who I went on to do many stories with. And his main interest was always this, um, he was very interested in human wildlife issues and that he really helped me, uh, start to learn what those stories were, the genre, and um, and so we we the first story we did together was um, was in Ladakh, India, which is high up in the Himalayas, where we were searching for snow leopards. And we went with this artist, and it was it was a we never did see a snow leopard. I saw evidence of it. I saw its footprints, and I saw some very scared blue she- sheep. Uh, running away through uh, binoculars. (laughs) Uh, So I knew it was there. And then, um, but yes, it was like this amazing journey. And, you know, also another good uh, experience where I didn't actually come away with images of the snow leopard, but I did come away with a great story because so much of it is the adventure and, and the discovery and all the ups and downs trying to, you know, seek out our our mission in in searching.
0: How has working with National Geographic changed over the past 20 years?
1: Mm. Well, I mean the institution has changed, the magazine has changed. It went from being a place where two weeks was a short amount of time for a story and now we're grateful for two weeks on a story. Budgets have changed. Um, the mission has changed, uh, you know, I think the mission, how, well, I mean, I think I, in some ways it's really great because I think they've diversified, they have become much more global. And I mean, they were always global, right. From the outsider's perspective. But when you actually looked at it, it was a very, uh, sort of Western perspective, And on the world and, you know, you can go back in history and, and I would say, and they've actually come to acknowledge it, it did have a very colonial, its roots are colonial and, um, people were not respected in a way, um, you know, they would never, they would never narrate the stories the way that they did in the past. So I think there's been some really, you know, much needed change, (laughs) And that was the way things were, but it's it's definitely evolved. I think who the storytellers are is very different. It's much more diverse than it was. Um, there's they've discovered uh, you know they've really worked to go and find incredible talent all over the world and and find people who are from the communities whose stories that they're telling, which I think is is really important and and not that you don't need a diversity of viewpoints i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with outsiders looking you need a multitude of of voices and so i like this idea but also i think that that was missing in the past and and they're working hard to try to change that
0: no a lot of your early work was working in war zones correct
1: that's where i started absolutely
0: and then you transitioned into stories about wildlife and the environment. How did that transformation take place?
1: Great question. Well, uh, I mean, I was always very interested in why the world is the way that it is and how I wanted to understand these long historical conflicts. And I was 26 when I began really working in Uh, the Balkans and Gaza, um, Sierra Leone, Angola, Kashmir, places you've probably never heard of like Casamance in West Africa, or, you know, I spent time covering the Maoist rebellion in Nepal. And I really set down this path of, you know, telling these very political stories. But that journey really um, changed who I am, helped me kind of confront the harsh realities and the consequences of these global dynamics, dynamics. And, um, and I had been doing this and then really after 10 years began to understand that all these stories about people in the human condition whether it looks like it's a religious conflict or a geopolitical conflict, you begin to realize that the backdrop of every single one of them is usually nature and resources and the scarcity of basic resources like water or loss of fertile lands. But it always I started to understand if you start lifting the veil and looking deeply, it is often the demands that we place on our ecosystem that drives conflicts and human suffering. And so today I've really focused my work, not just on telling the story about people or just stories about wildlife, but actually how deeply intertwined and interconnected all of these stories are. And the other thing that I really like to to do is not just talk about the challenges and leave people, you know, feeling like, well, what do I do? I really seek out solution-based stories because honestly, in almost every story I've worked on, there are extraordinary people out there trying to, to, to find answers. And I think that we need to do a better job of sharing their work.
0: The importance of investing time, like you said earlier on these projects.
1: Absolutely.
0: and. One good example would be the pandas. I think it took you three years
1: It did multiple trips over three years, but I knew there were all these different aspects I mean surprisingly, the giant panda story was one of the most difficult stories and getting access to a very rare endangered animal was not easy with only a there's only a few thousand of them left in the world, and the Chinese treat it as a national symbol. Each panda is closely watched. They are literally million dollar bears that all of the the people working with them treat them with kid gloves. I mean, they're highly vulnerable. Getting access to the story took a lot of time, a lot of patience, trust, the right connections. And there were other challenges like interfering with their biology. These are wild bears. Everybody thinks that they're these, we've turned them into these almost cartoonish characters like a stuffed animal or, you know, Kung Fu Panda. But I mean, these are, these are bears with teeth and claws and to try to get close to them and tell the story and work with their very sensitive, the people taking care of them. Um, I think that was surprisingly harder than many of the other stories I've
0: told. And you dressed up in a panda suit? Oh, yes. Masked with panda urine and feces? <laughs>
1: yes, I did. And I would do it over a thousand times. So the the pandas, um, it's really a, an interesting story. But after one generation in captivity, they don't know how to be wild anymore. They have to be retrained how to survive in the wild. And so the biggest threat to pandas are actually human, human beings. And so the head of the program, Zhang Himin who's affectionately, he was called Papa Panda. He had this idea and he said, you know, the pandas should not be comfortable around us ever. The ones that are going to be trained to go back to the wild. They should not know that human beings are near them because that's their biggest threat. Um, if they become comfortable around us, they'll, you know, and this is something that we see all over, like, you know, grizzly bears coming in and eating, you know, garbage from humans. And that's the biggest danger to animals really to a lot of wildlife. So we all had to dress up in these panda costumes. (laughs) And, uh, and the funny part is that, you know, they had to be scented because pandas go by scent, not sight. And it was really the most bizarre story i mean every morning if you can imagine all of us are getting dressed up suited up in these um these costumes and i have to say it's harder than you think to rock a panda suit because they were like these crazy kind of spooky um <laughs> panda costumes they weren't um yeah it 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 was pretty funny so but oh my gosh i would do it over again uh just to get close to these creatures because Everything I discovered blew my mind. It was nothing that I had imagined, and uh, I know. I mean, you have a lot of people that are. They have all these ideas about about pandas, and sort of spending time with them in zoos is a very different experience because actually, the truth is, they're very solitary creatures. They don't like. They're not um, as social as we think, and in the wild, they'll they'll really. S- They'll be alone and they, and they only come together to either breed or if a mother has a cub. Um, so that's the only time in the wild you'd see them together.
0: You parlayed all these images into a book, Panda Love, The Secret Lives Mm -hmm. of Panda, which the the subtitle had me a little curious, you know, what are these pandas doing when we're not looking exactly what kind of secret life are they living? (laughs)
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I think surprises people is that how elusive they are. They have been on this planet for millions of years. And if you can believe it, they were only recently discovered to humanity. I mean, if you look at ancient Chinese art, you will see representations of every other kind of creature living in, in that, in those habitats, you'll see representations of bamboo, other bears, other wildlife but never the giant panda and it was only pretty recently i mean the first one was captured alive only in 1936 which is not that long ago if you think about it and so how did they survive so long hidden away from humanity and it was you know the fact that they evolved their whole uh digestive system. They went from being carnivorous animals to being a, uh, a bear that only almost exclusively eats bamboo. And they did that so they didn't have to compete with other predators for food. And so they lived in these, you know, thick bamboo forest hidden away from humanity. And they'd have to just sit and eat lots and lots of bamboo to get enough calories to survive. And it's amazing. I mean, their bodies evolved over millions of years. They developed a sixth thumb so they could hold the bamboo better. Their whole digestive tract changed to be able to consume bamboo. And, um, you know, it's, it's, they're a fascinating animal. They're very, m- to me, really mystical in a lot of ways. And, and nothing... What I they, they were nothing that I had imagined when I came in with my own preconceived notions.
0: Can you talk about the difference between photography as storytelling and photography purely as aesthetics or fine art? And where does National Geographic fall on that spectrum?
1: Well, I think National Geographic falls like it merges between both. And I think um, to be in National Geographic, you have to be both. It has to be... Uh, powerful, beautiful in some way, captivating. Maybe it's not beautiful, but it it, it is an image that um, has technique and um, and something that captures your heart um, and and your eye. Um, it's like food for the soul, but it has story. So I think that is the one thing that separates National Geographic from a lot of, you know, just pure artful images. Like they need to have a message and a story. And I think that's something, a craft that a lot of photographers or aspiring photographers should think about. Because being a good storyteller is a is a craft that has to be honed. And it's not enough just to make beautiful images. You need to be able to weave together a, a visual story. And that takes time to learn how to do. And that is a skill that I think even with AI and all of these changes to our, our industry, knowing how to tell a good visual story, you will always be in demand.
0: You, you talk about storytelling a lot. And I was wondering if you're referring to like a series of images, like a National Geographic feature, or can you tell a story in a single image?
1: You can tell a story in a single image, but you also need to be able to tell A story with many images. Um, There, I would say, for example, Steve Winter's image of P22, the cougar, in front of the Hollywood sign. That is a storytelling image. I would say my image of uh, Sudan and Joseph Wichira, uh, who was his keeper, and Sudan was the last male northern white rhino, and JoJo leaning in to say goodbye to him as he was about to pass away um, and it was sort of signaling the end of a species. That is a storytelling image. I think getting those kinds of images, it may look like it's one 100th of a second. It's not, it's years of research, relationship building, understanding your story, but that that's, those are powerful images. Um, I would talk about the work of Nick Brandt, you know, his work is fine art, but is there a story behind every image? Absolutely. Does he spend years and invest not just finances, but his whole being into the work he creates? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what, uh, a lot of this work is. I think, you know, it's, it's one thing to go on a safari and take beautiful pictures of, of wildlife and there is nothing wrong with that. It's so important to appreciate the beauty of this world. And even in our backyard, there's all of us like finding beauty in your backyard is so important, but work harder, go deeper, figure out. And there's always a story. And I would also say to anybody listening, try not to repeat the stories that have already been told. I mean, there are so many stories that need good storytellers. and. I mean, I I just came back from from a story I worked on and they they told me nobody has been here to tell this story. And what does that do? It makes them happy to have you. Instead of people sort of rehashing the same story, asking people to, you know, uh, you know, it's exhausting to be in front of the camera. And I think understanding uh that it takes a lot out of people and being respectful, that's something important to realize, but I'm getting off a a track a little bit. Like you, you want to dig into stories. They, they have the same elements that a good book would have, you know, read a good book and figure out what were all of the, the moments in the book and, and think about how would you illustrate that? And listen, some stories are great stories for radio and they're not great stories for pictures. Not all stories are great visual stories. Some are, Um, some aren't, or it takes tremendous time and really figuring out how you're going to tell it.
0: How has becoming a filmmaker made you a better storyteller with your still camera?
1: Oh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, I mean, I think in the beginning when I was just a photographer, I would sort of do a lot of wandering and just seeing, figuring out where the pictures were. And I think being a filmmaker, you really need to think about the story and write out a script for it. And now as a photographer, I do a lot more scripting and not that I follow the script, but I have a sense before I even go what the the key points are. How am I going to illustrate them? And it's just, I think it's about spending more time thinking about your story before you even leave you know, to start telling it. Um, it's just made me more thoughtful and intentional about how I spend my time and who I speak to and how to get the various perspectives and a multitude of viewpoints.
0: When you're working a scene or a subject or just searching for a photo, you can let the aesthetics guide you. You can let composition guide you. You can let the light guide you, or you can let your emotional reaction, or your emotional connection guide you? I know it could be several of those things at the same time, but what in particular leads you to a photo? Let, let me or let me rephrase that. Do you see more with your eyes or do you see with your heart?
1: Oh, I love that. I mean, you have to see with your heart first, though. But you need both of those things. You can't just see with your heart. You, um, you also have to be able to understand, it has to have something. There's some magic. And I think when you lead with your heart, it leads you to the magic. And, and, and the people, I mean, this is a really interesting experience I had. When, you tr- when you're honest and transparent with your heart and make yourself vulnerable, People see that they feel it, and they open up. And I just had the most beautiful experience where I was working with a, a beautiful group of a community who had a really sacred place, and they when I first met them, they said, "We will show you everything, but the one place we can't take you is this very sacred part." And I said, "No problem. I'm just here to learn." And you know, by the end of my trip um I had such a strong bond. It was so emotional. And, uh, these three sisters said, actually, um, they, they believe that their ancestors had called them and told them that I should come to this sacred place, that it was very important that I see it. And I almost don't even want to talk about it because it was so, you know, I think it's some of these moments, you know, I don't know what it is. I will just call it magic. And that when you're truly present with people and making them feel safe, they will open up and guide you to what you need to see.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. A theme uh, throughout your work has also been finding a light of hope and humanity in some of the darkest places and darkest times. Can you give an example of when and where you have found that light and that hope in a dark, dark place? I
1: find it everywhere. And I think right now it feels, it, it is hard for everybody on that planet, whether you're living in a war zone or outside of it, if you're paying attention, it's, it's a very painful, and I think it's always been painful. There's always been this suffering on this planet. But I think its it has never been more important than it is now to always wrap your arms around this beautiful world with love. And especially in these moments when it feels so overwhelming, um, I see it everywhere. I see it in the people I've met in, in, in all of the wars that I have covered, all of the, the droughts and the suffering. It's the extraordinary people that I meet who are as resilient as nature is. We are part of this natural world and we are part of, it is this light and darkness in the world. And I think it's so important to remember both exist and to give energy As much energy as you put into talking about the challenges, you need to also focus on the hope and the extraordinary people and the light and the resilience because the stories we tell ourselves and to our societies become our our reality. They shape who we are and the world we live in. And by only focusing on those dark moments, we create more darkness
0: and that's where the headlines are.
1: Exactly. What bleeds right? leads. And I have been I can honestly I'm not Pollyanna here. I have spent time I I put myself in really very uncomfortable places and it's so funny how a few days in these really horrifying places in the sense of what of man's inhumanity to to met our fellow man and to the creatures we coexist with in this planet, that kind of suffering is brutal, but it's, it's amazing because I always find the most extraordinary people that I just want to understand where they get their, their energy and their light from. And I also feel this profound need to amplify their voices too, because There is so much hope and there is so much, this world is still a very beautiful place. And I think there is ultimately more, um, there is more light than darkness. I I find so many solution based stories out there. Uh, I will, and those are the stories I spend quite a lot of time on. The story of the Northern white rhino was one about, I thought I was documenting the end of an entire species. I began it 15 years ago. There were only eight of them left on the planet. I thought we were on this march to what extinction looks like. And guess what? That story, like all stories, always has a hopeful twist. Um, it's always this small group of indu- individuals that bands together in the darkest moment to find a way forward. And it's the bio-rescue team, which is this international consortium of scientists and conservationists and governments all over the world who are very close to resurrecting the species from near extinction. That's one story. Another story in Kenya is Ritetti Elephant Sanctuary, where, you know, every time there's a challenging moment, they they are doing things differently. They're doing conservation differently. It's totally indigenous owned and run, which is different. They hire women, indigenous women to be elephant keepers for the first time in Africa. They find solutions like during um, the pandemic when they couldn't find, well, they were worried that the, the, their source of the milk formula was supply chain might break down and that they wouldn't be able to get milk, they started looking around to nature for another avenue, another plan B. And they found, made their greatest discovery in this, in this terrifying moment when they thought they wouldn't be able to feed the baby orphaned elephants. They went from using a powdered milk formula meant for human babies to using goat milk. And that actually took them from a 50% survival rate when the babies first arrived to the sanctuary to a 98% survival rate. So not only did it work, it was better than anything they could have imagined. And another piece of this story that they weren't even thinking about, but all that money that was going to a big multinational company for the powdered milk formula is now staying within the community. And guess who owns the milk? It's the the women. The the men own the goats and the women own the goat milk. So for the first time in their lives, women were opening up bank accounts and they have money now, savings, money to send their children to school, money for healthcare. The elephants are giving them agency. And I promise you, if you stick with any story long enough, there will be dark moments for sure. Life is not perfect. It's messy. There are ups and downs. I mean, the conservation world is, is, you know, it's difficult. We have to try and take risks and some things don't work. But sometimes it is in these most challenging moments that they are our opportunities for our biggest transformation. And I see that everywhere on every single story. And if, you know, I think we need to get beyond those headlines again, because I promise you on every, every situation, you're going to find people find the best versions of themselves when they're pushing themselves to to a work in difficult places,
0: and not enough of those stories being told. When you hear more, exactly. of it, you need to hear more.
1: Exactly, and you know, I just think that's. I want to. I hope this is inspirational to anybody listening. Just slow down. Like look around and talk to people and find something close to your heart, maybe even close to you physically, um, because every community has has important stories which need to be told.
0: You're a founder in a nonprofit called Vital Impacts. It's a woman-led nonprofit which uses art and storytelling to support people and organizations who are protecting the planet. Now, I want to give you the opportunity to share with the audience what Vital Impacts is all about.
1: Oh, this has been my favorite project because I—I
0: <laughs> I know it I is. I mean, it's
1: interesting. I believe me. I love, I love the craft that I do. I love being in the field telling stories, but I also realize like we don't have time anymore for the planet. We need everybody that can, that is interested in this to be telling the stories in their communities. And there are phenomenal photographers and storytellers and journalists who don't have the opportunities. And I see right now as media is struggling, it's hard to get opportunities to tell these stories in a long form, you know, the the time that it takes to do this work, you have to invest a lot. And so I realized that we have this huge opportunity, not just to tell the stories, but also to, you know, to empower the storytellers. So we've created a grant program. We've created a mentoring program. We are mentoring, um, Incredible people in 68 countries around the world. Some of them are in really remote places, didn't have access to information or to the gatekeepers, which is what we're doing. We're creating mentorships with some of the best editors at, you know, all the magazines around the world from National Geographic to The Guardian to Smithsonian, uh, Washington Post. All these incredible editors and photographers are stepping up to help others, um, in their storytelling, learning the craft and, and really just creating connection and community among all these people who share a commitment to our planet. Really? I mean, we're really focused. The thing about what we do is one, you should be really, uh, an environmental storyteller that can be anything from wildlife to the natural world to you know climate crisis it can be anything related to that two you need to also not just talk about the challenges but i want to hear who who the extraordinary people are in your community trying to find answers to these problems it has to be a solution based story and thirdly we are not funding um people parachuting into places you need to be telling a story in your own community. It should be a local story that you have an understanding and a relationship and the trust with the community that you're working with. And so we also we have that, we have an online mentoring program and then one-on-one mentorship. We are about to announce two more twenty thousand dollar grants for people to work on one project over this span the span of a year. Yeah, thank you. And then the third thing that we're doing is um well we do many things. We also fund grassroots conservation through print sales. And right now we're supporting Rattetti Elephant Sanctuary with our current print sale. And the thing about these sales, I really believe the photographers should also earn from the sale of their prints. So 40% of the sales go to the photographer, 60% goes to the nonprofit we're supporting. So it can be a win-win for everybody. Photographers need to find ways to earn an, a a livelihood because you can't be doing a second job. You need to totally commit to this career. And we're trying to find ways to, uh, you know, create income streams for the photographers. And then the last thing I'll say we do is, um, we've set up a, a live speaker series. We go into schools right now. It's just around the U S with, um, Right now we have uh, 12 speakers that go into the schools because I think there is nothing more powerful than hearing and believing that envisioning that you could be doing this job and envisioning a job and a career in this space. So we're bringing scientists and, you know, and storytellers um, trying to really advocate for stories and in. in kind of STEM and and environmental work.
0: The website is vitalimpacts.org, O-R-G. For those who want to check it out, I'll give this information again toward the very end. I, I thought it was interesting at the bottom of the page of the website, it says no AI was used, no AI generation was used for any of these images. What are, what are your thoughts on AI specifically and how it's affecting you know, your business or our business.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think watermarking is a really key issue that needs to be dealt with quickly. Um, we need to find a way to create trust because without trust, um, for all of us who work in this genre, we should realize like trying to alter your images for the sake of aesthetics is a very dangerous path to go down to. I think to me, it's about the the meaning of the image, and it's not about. I'll say this again: it's not about making beautiful images, but telling a powerful story. So the pursuit of truth should always prevail over the allure of manipulation, and that is a guiding principle that we need to, you know, find ways to uh, make sure that the images can be you know, that we have that digital watermark, really, that's the only proof we're going to have. We need to keep that trust. Authentic storytelling, the need for it will never go away. And yes, I think that we will see huge changes in our business. I think advertising photography will probably suffer. I think a lot of companies are already thinking about how they're going to use AI. To generate imagery for their websites for promotion, marketing. But real storytelling and wedding photography, those two genres, I think they're gonna be strong and people are gonna be hungry to have (laughs) these, you know. I'm not worried because being a, you know, yeah, learning that craft of how you tell real stories well is a is a craft. It takes time. And I think um that needs never going to go away.
0: Do you do your own photo editing?
1: I do. I don't do much. You know, I really am subtle and quick. I do. Um, I mean, for me, the the key is to get out early before the sun has even come up and also to be the last one at any event and be there late (laughs) when the sun has already set. Um, I try to make beautiful images in the camera. Light is key. Mm-hmm. Um, darkness is key. It's like understanding light is really important. So I try to craft the image first, but I'm actually really proud to be a Luminar ambassador and they've helped me streamline my workflow, but I have very strict parameters in post-processing and I really only use the bare minimal adjustments um, and I don't alter what I see when I'm creating those images.
0: That's a club to which I also belong, a global ambassador for Luminar. Yay. Do you have a favorite failure? That would be an apparent failure or disappointment in your career that set you up later for success.
1: Oh, 100%. I I have a lot of those. But I think it's like realizing sometimes rejection, like something you want so desperately. And I had been working for years on one story and desperately you know for this has happened actually a few times like i felt so committed to it and and i was rejected ultimately um and was not allowed to do it and i realize now in retrospect that I, it it forced me to pivot and then i found something even more meaningful even more like wildly, (laughs) like just all the things that I cared about and the, and just this wild, wonderful world. And so it is usually in these moments when you feel a sense of loss and rejection, um, that it pushes you on a path that you need to be on. And I, I, you probably want more details about that, but I've actually had it happen so many times and yes, there's usually other people involved. And the other piece of that I've learned is never hold grudges, just let go. You know, if, if somebody does something and, you know, this happens a lot where maybe a story you've been working on and, um, and somebody has kind of come in and and pushed you out <laughs> that's happened and um and i just learned to don't look back like there's something even better on the horizon and i would not be doing what i'm doing today if all of those really terrible moments of rejection and loss had not happened
0: i think we all have those moments what book have you read recently, say over the past five years, that has had the biggest influence on your life or your career?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, there's too many. I don't know um, if it could be one, but I I actually, during the pandemic, really got interested in trees and sort of looking at the world through the way a tree might look through the world. And so I would recommend The Hidden Life of Trees. That was fascinating to see um, and learn um, about the ways this beautiful web, like on the surface, they look one way, even a tree might look dead. It's chopped down, but actually this incredible interconnected world right underneath the surface. And I just I love so many of the metaphors from from this um you know learning about about this whole you know just the ecosystems um and how important those are. I also love braiding sweetgrass and then the overstory and all of those have a similar uh, thread that connects them, which is sort of, um, kind of understanding the wisdom and, um, how, when you just slow, I guess for me, it's about slowing down and, and knowing that we're part of something so much greater than us. And it makes everything feel better.
0: Hey, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Folks. Amy's website is com. Vitaly is spelled V-I-T-A-L-E. And you can find her on Instagram at Amy Vitale. And I mentioned earlier Vital Impacts, Amy's nonprofit we talked about, vitalimpacts.org. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me.
1: Richard, it is such a pleasure to finally meet you and thank you. I hope we connect in person one day. Thank you.
0: I'm sure we will. Be safe in your travels. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thanks to Amy Vitale for an inspiring conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. You can tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any comments or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you'd like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time.